children can be dismissed for children's church. Following Paula Balkovic. You all sound good from down here. Can't hear you as well up there. We got monitors. We just hear ourselves. And it's very nice. If uh, if you have a bulletin, if you've seen the blue insert there, I just want to call attention to that. Uh, it's some project I've been working on for a little while now. It was, uh, we just thought... You know, we had a great concert last year. We should have another one this year. And I, uh, I called U2 and Switchfoot, and they were busy. So we uh, decided to go with the next level down, but not too much farther because these, these guys are really solid. Um, both of these uh, guys, Zach, what's his last? Jones, <laughs> are really good friends of mine. Um, and Derek <laughs> Harris. Uh, they are good friends. I just um, They're both on staff at, at churches locally, Reformed churches. Uh, Zach is at the Christ Community Church. No, Grace Community Church. Uh, it's a sovereign grace church in Ashburn. And then Derek is at McLean Prez, and he's the youth pastor. They're both the youth pastors. I think uh, Zach does music as well. And if you notice, the song Psalm 103 that we sang earlier was written by Zach, and uh, so I think it'll be neat to fill the tally-ho with all of us singing along with him. So that is a week from tonight, 7 o'clock. Um, I think the tally-ho will be a neat place to have a concert and get there early. It only seats 170 people, so you can definitely get in. Wow, this could be uh, one of the shortest services Potomac Hills has ever seen. I'll stretch it out. The grandfather of Christian rock is dead. Don't know if you heard. Larry Norman died last Sunday. Uh, His heart finally gave out after... I think three heart attacks and numerous health problems over the last few years. If you don't know anything about Larry Norman, he's worth checking into. He came out in the late 60s, early 70s at the height of the Jesus People movement. I realize that's a little bit before my time, but uh, Philip Pugh and I talk about all the old Christian rock guys and Steve and Dave Kaminsky, and we like to reminisce about those guys, and uh, he was considered probably the most accomplished singer and songwriter in the Christian scene at the time, and his albums stacked up next to the greatest secular albums of the time. Production was much higher than the Christian music at the time, and he really sang and, and wrote quality songs that uh, his generation could relate to. He obviously, he took a lot of flack because that was back when we weren't sure if Christians could sing rock and roll yet. And so he was one of the ones that uh, kind of took all the hits 
for all the Christian rock bands today. Uh, he was admired by the likes of Paul McCartney, well-respected at the time. Um, even though he was pretty divisive for the church, weren't sure what to do with him. It actually amused him 20 years after he was so such a divisive figure. His songs were included in hymn books. Uh, you've probably heard, I Wish We've All Been Ready, or A Sweet Song of Salvation. Some of the other titles will give you a flavor for his message and his music. Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? Why Don't You Look Into Jesus? The Rock That Doesn't Roll? Forget Your Hexagram? And Righteous Rocker? I could sing them all. We could do a little medley here. I had really delved into Larry's music in the late 90s. Converted all of his records into CDs, and I've probably heard almost everything he's written and recorded. Um, I've even seen him a couple times live. But the first time I ever heard one of his songs was not from him, not from one of his recordings. I was in seventh grade at youth group camp, and one of the summer staff, Brian Tucker, pulled out his guitar and sang a song called The Outlaw. Now, this was 1985, 86, so it was old even then. This was, you know, early 70s it had been written. And I watched Brian, and I said, right then and there, that's what I'm going to do. I don't know, I hadn't been around a lot of people that played guitar and played songs about Jesus. I mean, I'd grown up in the church, but pretty uh, traditional church. And I was just captivated, and I spent my teen years learning guitar so I could sing songs about Jesus like that. I want to speak to you the words from that song, The Outlaw, because I think it's a great uh, review of where we've been in John, a good, um, just a look back at Jesus' life. Some say he was an outlaw, that he roamed across the land with a band of unschooled ruffians and a few old fishermen. No one knew just where he'd come from or exactly what he'd done. But they said it must be something bad that kept him on the run. Some say he was a poet, that he'd stand upon the hill, that his voice could calm an angry crowd or make the waves stand still, that he spoke in many parables that few could understand. And the people sat for hours just to listen to this man. Some say he was a sorcerer, a man of mystery. He could walk upon the water, he could make a blind man see. That he conjured wine at weddings and did tricks with fish and bread. He talked of being born again and raised people from the dead. Some say a politician who spoke of being free. He was followed by the masses on the shores of Galilee. He spoke out against corruption and he bowed to no decree. They feared his strength and power, so they nailed him to a tree. Some say he was the son of God, a man above all men, that he came to be a servant and to set us free from sin. And that's who I believe he was, because that's who I believe. And I think we should get ready, because it's almost time to leave. With that overview of Jesus' life and the ways that, Jesus, that people saw Jesus, let's turn our attention now to our scripture. 
We've come through the Gospel of John to Jesus has been on trial in front of the Jewish leaders, in front of Pilate. He's been condemned despite Pilate's best efforts to put that off. He's been hung on the cross. Last week we heard that the soldiers gambled for his cloak and that he united his mother Mary with the disciple that he loved, John. So today we've got three short verses that are packed with great significance. John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here we have two sayings of Jesus on the cross. And if you look at all of the Gospels together, you find that there are seven sayings. They're commonly referred to as the seven last words of Christ. So I want to kind of put them in that context. Elisha, if you could go two slides up. The last seven sayings. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Recorded in Luke. And then, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise, to the thief on the cross. Also recorded in Luke. And then what he said in our sermon last week, woman, behold your son, speaking to Mary, and then to, to John, behold your mother. Then Matthew and Mark, the only words that they've recorded are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we have the two sayings from today, I thirst and it is finished. And if you didn't have Luke, you might think it is finished was the last word, but it's most likely, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, none of the gospel writers obviously records all of those sayings, so we're not totally sure about the sequence, but that seems to me the most logical. So right at the end of his life, and I figured this would be a good place to uh, give another plug. I've plugged the concert, but uh, Good Friday, we are going to have uh, a time together at the Pew's house, 7 o'clock, Friday night, March 21st. Um, I'm calling it a Good Friday song, scripture, and prayer time. I'm not calling it a service. We're not going to have bulletins. not really going to have a sermon. But we're just going to have a time to sit together, go through those seven sayings, We'll have a, a reading, a song, and a and prayer for each one of those. I think it'll be a meaningful time. If, if you're in town, you can clear your schedule for that. Um, since I've been here, we haven't had a Good Friday service, so I'm excited to uh, explore that and do that. I thirst. What we might take to be the least spiritual of all seven of those sayings, turns out to have some real significance when we look closely at it. 
Number one, it, it really shows Jesus' humanity. You know, all the heresies and errors of the church, so many of them throughout church history, have happened because people have emphasized one of Jesus' natures to the exclusion of the other. So we have people that say, yeah, he was human, but he just was infused at some point, maybe at his baptism with the Spirit of Christ, but he wasn't truly fully God because you can't kill God on a cross, right? And so we have that extreme and that error. On the other hand, we have, oh, Jesus was fully God, but he just appeared to be a human being. Because it's hard to think of a Savior who suffers. It's hard to think of a Savior who needed rest and had dirty feet, went through puberty. But we have to acknowledge that Jesus is fully man and fully God. And throughout church history, we've had church leaders, orthodox theologians who have said, we need to get this right. Jesus is fully God, fully man, without division, separation, or confusion. And yet, here we have Jesus saying, very human reaction. Up till now, he's been pretty silent about his suffering. Or at least nobody recorded that he cried out and said how much the whippings and the beatings and the thorns and everything he's gone through hurt. We have a very human response to his extreme dehydration at this point. He's hung on the cross probably six hours at this point. Second, it it obviously shows his sufferings. I've named a few of them that Jesus was just beat to a pulp at that point. Nails in his wrists and his feet to hold him to the cross as his lungs collapsed and he suffocated. But there's another sense, I think, to this. Because Jesus suffered more than just physically on the cross. I think there was this real spiritual suffering that he went through. Because it is on the cross that Jesus receives our sin. God poured out the sins of every Christian, every believer through all time on Jesus. And then he punished those sins. He experienced hell on the cross. And if you remember the story, there's a parable that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus Not Lazarus that he brought back from the dead, but Lazarus was a beggar who ate the crumbs off the rich man's table. And they both die. And the rich man somehow is able to look up into heaven. The the rich man goes to hell. Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man looks up and says, dip your finger in the water to cool my tongue because I am in agony. And I think that's also a sense that we can feel here that as Jesus suffers hell for us on the cross, 
that he needs relief from that suffering as well. He suffered extremely physically, but also spiritually. And finally, it's significant because as John has pointed out, this is going to be a fulfillment of Scripture. He says that right in verse 28. But we don't know. John doesn't tell us exactly what Scripture it fulfills. Our best guess is Psalm 69, 21. Elisha, you can get that up there for us. Where David, Psalm of David says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So many of the Psalms that that are messianic prophecies probably happened to David or the psalmist. But they also give us an understanding of what's going to happen with the Savior. And John emphasizes the sour wine. Did you catch that when we read the, the passage in verses 29 and 30? You hear the word sour, the phrase sour wine three times. And so he emphasized the fact that the bystanders, probably the soldiers, grabbed a branch and put the wine on that and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And he drank from it. And it's been speculated that uh, by unbelievers, you know, Jesus, maybe he arranged some of these prophecies. Maybe he cried out, I'm thirsty, so that they would give him sour wine. And, oh, look, I fulfilled the prophecy. But if you look, and I almost brought the list, but I didn't. There is a list of 29 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled in 24 hours time period before his death. 29. That's not even to mention the numerous ones from his birth and throughout his life in the resurrection. We're talking about a 24-hour time period. The soldiers gambling for his clothes. Pilate. I mean, all the different parts. Suffering in silence. As a lamb led like a sheep to the slaughter. All those things Jesus has fulfilled. And this is one more. No one could stage those. No one could arrange those things. But Jesus' life is playing out exactly as God planned it, scripted it. And there's a real contrast here as well with something that Jesus has said earlier. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asks God, the Father, If there's any way, take this cup of suffering from me. And we know that God didn't take it from him and that Jesus was obedient all the way and drank from this figurative cup of suffering. And so he has drunk and been full with pain and suffering on our behalf and yet physically He's gone without a drink. In fact, Matthew and Mark record that they offer, at the beginning when he gets up on the cross, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh because that would dull the pain. And he turned that down because he knew he had to feel this suffering and go through with it. And so it's only now that he takes a drink, I think probably to loosen up his tongue so that he could proclaim his final words. 
If you haven't read the end of the Bible recently, you should. It's good stuff. We win. And it is a beautiful picture. The fifth to last verse. Revelation. Pull that up, Elisha. The new heavens and the new earth are established. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What a great promise. Jesus' thirst and his obedience ensures that one day we will all be in a place where we'll never be thirsty again. We'll drink from the water of life, of God's blessing and of God himself. If you remember the most recent adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the movie that came out two years ago, you might remember a scene near the end. And if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, spoiler alert, close your ears or something. But no, if you haven't read the book, go to a bookstore tomorrow and buy the whole set and read them before you watch American Idol or Lost. These are great books. And Prince Caspian's coming out in May, so definitely read it before then. But there's a scene near the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where... Peter and Edmund and the good Narnian forces are battling the white witch and the bad Narnian forces. And it seems like all's lost. The witch is killing everybody, turning to stone. Aslan's nowhere to be seen, but then he arrives. And he comes and he ends the battle decisively. And he turns to Peter, and in the movie, he says, It is finished. And there were some Christian film critics that that saw the movie and were kind of shocked because that's not in the book. They added that in and and Andrew Adamson, the director, is not a believer. He he said at the beginning, I don't I don't want to change anything. I don't want to you know take out the parts that mean something to Christians, but it wasn't his reason for making the movie. He just loved the story, but he added this in, and so somebody asked him. Did you add that because you knew that that's what Jesus said on the cross? And he said, I had no idea. It was just a good way for me to have Aslan tell Peter that the battle is over. And I think there's a way that we can take this statement of Jesus, it is finished, at face value also. That it could be interpreted that Jesus is, is just saying it's over with. My life's done. Maybe a sign of resignation, of failure, and of defeat. Maybe he's sending a message to his followers. Guys, it's over. Stop following me. Or he's telling the Jews and the Romans, the rebellion's over. Don't worry. It's done. But we know That is not how Jesus meant it. And this is so significant, what he says here, with it is finished. We're seeing what Arthur Pink described as going from the words of the victim 
My God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty. From the words of the victim to the words of the victor. Jesus isn't admitting defeat here. He is declaring victory. The task that Jesus was sent into the world to do was accomplished. And now he could be released to death, knowing that he would defeat death and rise. In John 17, 4, Jesus had said, Elisha, can you do the next one? Speaking to God, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So what was this? What is the it that is finished? What is this work that Jesus has been given and that he's accomplished? If you're taking notes, I've I've given you five blanks on the back. Jesus has finished his perfect life. And it's not just that his life is over. It's that his, he had pursued it in perfection. And he had not sinned throughout the course of his 30-some years. In full obedience to the Father. And that's significant. His sinless life is important because those of us with sin have no business offering ourselves as substitutes for other people's sins. We've got to deal with our own sin. We've got to pay that penalty. But a perfect person could offer themselves as a substitute. And so that is just as big big a part of Jesus' redemption of us as his dying, is that he lived the perfect life so that he could be offered up in our place. Number two, his suffering is over. And we've talked about that, but the fact that there will be no more pain for Jesus, even though he is still united as fully God, fully man, there's no human pain for Jesus after his death. There is the victory of the resurrection and reigning in glory, being reunited with the Father and being restored to his place of honor and power. He's redeemed his bride and so his wedding will occur. His suffering is over. His sacrifice is over and in a greater sense, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is over. Since Jesus died once for all time, there's no need for the blood of any animals to be shed in our place anymore. You don't need to keep killing sheep and goats when you have the Lamb of God given himself up once for all time. And Luke, I think Luke is the only gospel writer that notes that the curtain in the temple that afternoon was torn in half. And he just mentions it and moves on. He doesn't explain it. But that is hugely symbolic and significant as well because 
the curtain in the temple is what separated the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was, from the rest of the temple. And no one was allowed in there except the priests when they went to make the sacrifice. And Jesus' death, Hebrews explains this so much more, that Jesus is the high priest that goes in and gives himself up as a sacrifice. And now the curtain is torn away. We have free access to his grace. We don't need a human high priest to make that sacrifice for us. We are invited to the throne room. We have full access to God the Father through Jesus. Fourth, Satan is defeated. Death itself is defeated. Well, I should go to the next one. Colossians 2, 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Is Satan still working? Yes, Satan is still alive and well. It's not hard to see the evidence of evil in our world. But to quote the words of the hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. His reign is over and he knows it. But it'll play out until he's cast into the lake of fire at the end of time. And finally, fifth, salvation is secured and accomplished. And all those things I've already talked about, the fact that Jesus was perfectly obedient, that he suffered in our place, that he was the sacrifice and that he defeated death, all of those things work together to give us salvation before God. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We're saved from our sins. We're saved from hell. We are saved. We don't have to fear God's wrath. It is finished is actually just one word in Greek. To telestai. And I'm not showing off my Greek in the third semester. We haven't actually even covered that. But I've, I grew up hearing sermons about this and, and youth talks. To telestai. The Greek merchants, apparently, and bankers would, when the bill was paid, stamp to telestai on it. It meant paid in full. And so we have kind of this multiple ideas with this word. It is finished, paid in full. And really, it's in the perfect tense, which means that something happens and it continues to happen. And so literally, it could mean it has been, 
and will forever remain finished. One word that it gives so much great meaning. An amazing concept that our sins are paid in full before you were born. Before you thought of the sins, before you sinfully thought of the sinful things you did, they were paid in full on the cross. When we ask for forgiveness, when we repent of our sins, good things, we're forgiven. But it doesn't happen right then. They've been forgiven. The the sins of believers, the elect all throughout history were paid for at that moment and Jesus is declaring it. Our sentence was served and we will never have to pay the spiritual penalty for them. One last point before I go to the application. I had never seen this before, but uh, one of the commentaries I read pointed this out to me. See if you can get this picture. When Jesus died, right after this, the next verse says that the Sabbath was to start. And if you think about the Sabbath, it was on Saturday. It actually went from sundown to sundown. So the Sabbath would have started around, what, 6 o'clock Friday night. Jesus declares that his work is finished right before the Sabbath. I've never seen that before. Think about Genesis, the creation. God works for six days and then rests. And now we have the work of redemption. And it is finished and the Sabbath rest starts. Creation and redemption are linked And I think there's even a greater significance that when our work is finished, we will enter our ultimate Sabbath rest. So how do we apply this passage? I don't think any of us are planning on dying on the cross, so we're not looking at this as a model for how we're going to act. Stop trying to finish the work of Christ. Jesus finished the work of salvation. There's nothing that can be added to it or taken away from it. Your good works cannot save you. There's no amount of bargaining with God, storing up enough good works, It's not a 50-50 proposition. It's not even a 99%, 1% that Jesus does most of it, but you need to do your part. Jesus did the work for you. The standard for salvation is perfection, and the penalty for imperfection is death and separation from God, and Jesus fulfilled all of those things. The perfect life and then his substitutionary death. And yet, this is one of the hardest things to drive through the human heart. Because we are incurable doers. We have a hard time accepting that God is offering us this free gift. 
and we can't pay it back. We want to work for it somehow. Stop and accept the grace that he's given to you. If you've never believed that Jesus died in your place and offers you the forgiveness of your sins, if you've never believed that enough to turn your life over to him, that is your sole application today. Nothing else matters until you've surrendered your life to him and accepted him as Lord and Savior. If this is making sense for the first time, please come and talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to any of the people in here that you know are believers that could pray with you and talk to you more about the fact that eternal life is at stake. I'll give you a second application, a little less serious. But uh, maybe something you want to do, maybe not. Consider giving up something for the next three weeks. If you remember, Lent is the 40 days before Easter that started on Ash Wednesday. That's kind of come and gone. About halfway into Lent, but it's never too late. You got three weeks before Easter. Consider giving something up, something that means something to you. I mean, the, the classic joke is, I gave up vegetables and riding my motorcycle, which I don't have. Give up something that means something to you. Uh, you might have heard that uh, I was teaching middle school youth group last week, and I was teaching on Lent and Holy Week, and uh, I had not planned to do this, but things got out of hand, and all of a sudden we were deciding that we were all going to give something up for Lent, for the four weeks left in Lent. And first thing I said was, I'm not giving up coffee. I must have said it three or four times. Didn't work, apparently. We, we were... We were saying, okay, we should give up TV or video games, and we couldn't come to anything. And finally, we said, okay, we're going to give up all drinks except for milk and water. And I don't know how I agreed to that, but we did it. That's what this rubber band is. It's the Whammo Club. Water and milk only. I don't know if you're supposed to give something up as a group. It's a good accountability. Um, I've never had caffeine withdrawal headaches like this week. But I'll tell you what, I realized a few things. I realized how addicted to coffee I am. But I realized how much of a, a comfort food it is to me. And I realized that the, so, much of the, so many of the things in my life I run to when I'm tired, when I'm angry, when things aren't working out. Do I turn to God? Occasionally. More often I'll rent a movie or put on my headphones or eat something I see a lot of nods consider that um, it's really good to let go of our idols and our addictions in our lives but even the good things in our lives and I hope I hit everybody with this TVs, TV, movies music Facebook, eBay magazines, shopping video games I hope I've hit everybody. Those are good things. They're fine in and of themselves. I'm not saying any of them are bad. It can be bad art or immoral art, but 
those things are okay. But to give them, to step away from them for a time and release their hold on you. I mean, I literally felt like caffeine had a hold on me early in the week. Just, I think I'm just getting out of that. And those that gave up sweets and uh, soda and different things, you realize how enslaved you are. And so just in a, in a small way, I felt like I was identifying with Jesus' suffering. That's what Lent's about. Stress the very small way that we can identify with Jesus' sufferings. If you do give something up, realize that it's not going to affect your salvation one bit. It's not going to make, make God love you more. And if you blow it halfway through, he's not going to love you less. It's purely to help us realize how weak and needy we are and to identify a little bit with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for these weeks leading up to the Holy Week of Palm Sunday and Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Thank you that we have come to the point in John where we are reading through and talking through all of the events that happened at the end of your life so that Easter and Holy Week will be so much more meaningful. Lord, thank you for this account that we have from the disciple that Jesus loved, that you hung on the cross and bore our sins took them on that Jesus you suffered the wrath of your father the separation from God in our place and you accomplished the victory that we can claim Lord I pray that everyone here would hear those words hear the gospel clearly that you came to redeem us by giving your life as a ransom in our place so that we can have salvation, victory, eternal life with you. God, we celebrate that and we thank you so much for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.